coming next two weeks, I believe. The buildings that we own in Lakeview will be torn down. And probably in about uh, the next two weeks that will get accomplished. Now, we've actually had a number of people that have asked about, could we go by, have a look, take a picture, let it, can you let us know? Uh, don't, we don't quite know the schedule for the company at this point, but if you want to call us probably at the end of this week, we probably will have a better idea about that if you're really interested in going out and having a look. Uh, I understand it'll take several days for that to happen. They're actually going to start at Florida Lee and move towards all the other buildings. And uh, so we, we are, we're going to document all this and, and, and put together some uh, memorial elements from our time spent there in the past. But, you know, it gives me an opportunity, and I think all of us together an opportunity, to think about the whole building process. Um, I don't know if you've ever built your own home, if you've ever done a significant renovation to your home. Uh, you know there's, there's a different way of looking at your house when you have to sit down with someone who's going to draw up plans, or if you're one of those kind of people that writes on a napkin, uh, you know the, the feeling of having to sit down and think, why, why do I want this thing this way? And you, and you analyze the building of a house differently than when you just buy a house that's been there for 30 years and you're just coming in and buying it. Uh, when you consider a house from the ground up, you start thinking about space. You know, okay, how big do we want this room to be? And this one will flow into that. And how are we going to use this space? You know, what's the future of our family like? You know, are we going to be having children? Are the children moving out of the home? Are we anticipating we'll be doing a lot of entertaining, be having a lot of people come into our home. Um, and what about where we want certain things? You know, if you've lived in homes, you have to live with some of the choices of, you know, I hate that this light switch is over here and it's not over there. You know, I, I wish there was a phone jack right here. And, and when you build a house, you get asked all those questions. And, and sometimes you're not ready for that for somebody to say, okay, where you want all the outlets? Where you want all the lights? What kind of lights do you want? Where do you want uh, computer jacks and phone jacks and cable outlets? And, and you can just start spinning with the thought of, I, I've never thought about any of that. You know, I've just kind of inherited whatever I've always had and I've never had to make that decision. But it's, it's, a, it's a helpful thing to think through the function of the thing that you're building and not just the building. Here it is. We'll just, we'll just move in and use it. And sometimes... Kind of being in a, in a church can be that way. Being part of a church can sort of be like the difference between, did you just kind of inherit something that's been going on for 30 years, come in, and you don't really understand the function of it. You're just here. You don't know why the wall switches are located where they are. And, and what was the thought about how big this was going to be and how it would flow into that and why that ministry exists versus this one? If you, if you come in without thinking through the design, why is a church designed the way it is? Why does it have certain types of ministries in it? What is it trying to accomplish? Why build it a certain way? Why have that set of plans? And, and quite honestly, unless you're somebody who has served in a capacity of leadership, or you've been kind of part of a pioneering effort with a church where you know 20 people set out to plan a church in a city and, and build a church from the ground up, it may be that you've never really thought through why things are the way they are in a church. You know, you've been in the church world for years, and, you, and you've been in the church for a while, and you move to another church, and you just kind of come in, and things are the way they are, and, and it might be that you really won't engage some of the dynamics that are there, and 
won't even take time to understand why they're that way. I remember when we were, the second home that we moved into, I think the house was 30, 40 years old maybe, and when we got there and the house was all empty and we moved all of our stuff in, but up in the attic, there was stuff left in the attic. Previous owner had left a number of items in the attic and and eventually me crawling around up there to do some repairs or something, uh, discovered some of these items. Well, you know, I'm busy and I, I don't mess with all that stuff, so I just left it there. I didn't even look into it very much. And one of the things that kind of tweaked my interest was we learned after two weeks of being in the house that the former owner didn't just sell us the house. The former owner fled for his life. <laughs> he had apparently been involved in drugs, and, and he thought and he actually had a break-in, and people were coming, and they, they held him at gunpoint, and he and his, his, wasn't his wife, it was the woman he lived with, and they were all tied up and stuff. And I, we, learned, we learned this two weeks afterwards with my neighbor, and I, I'm meeting the neighbors, and he's saying, Wow, quite a story about what happened, huh? I'm like, no, what story? <laughs> and he tells me the whole story, and I'm kind of like, great. <laughs> uh, I remember calling my wife from work saying, honey, even if the police come to the door, don't let them in. Because these guys came disguised as drug agents. <laughs> so I'm thinking, hey, what if they don't know he's gone? You know, let's put a sign up. The Collins family, maybe with a picture, you know. <laughs> let's... let's give the impression those other people don't live here anymore. And I remember thinking, you know what? I've never really gone through the attic. What if there's like, you know, five pounds of heroin stashed up there? I probably should look around. But that's kind of not how I am. I just left the stuff up there. Eventually, we moved out, and I left the stuff in there too. So I don't know, even today, the other owner now has stuff that belonged to people that lived in the house years ago. And to some degree, I think we can come into a church and kind of be that way. You know, we come in, we came from a church that did things a certain way. So it's almost like it trained us to only think a certain way about the church. And so if you come into the church and this church does things differently than the past church, it's almost like, well, that's, that's attic stuff. You know, I mean, I've never used it in the past. Why would I be interested in it now? I, you know, I came from a church who didn't do whatever these covenant group things are that Matt talked. We didn't do that in the church where I came from. And, and so I don't really have any intention of getting involved in that. And so it just kind of sits in the attic without any understanding of why does that exist? And part of the problem with that mentality is we become involved with something that we don't know why it does what it does. And the whole element of being involved in a church can lose its dynamic because we've never thought through. What, what are we trying to build? What are we, what are we really trying to accomplish here? You know, as we've begun the... the the process, and, and we're actually kind of finalizing the plans for the new building, and <coughs> hundreds of man hours have gone into thinking through this building. Other folks have been invited into the process for them to think. We've sent plans out to all kinds of folks. Look at these, come up with ideas. Where do you see some, some needed adjustments? We've thought through everything that we uh, liked and disliked about our previous experiences with buildings and how they functioned and how they didn't function. And, and we have, have come up, we believe, with, a, with a, a plan, an architectural plan that's going to serve that we've thought into the future. We've thought about ministries. We've thought about how to use space and how to use a building and what serves people the best. But this is a good opportunity for us. And I want to capture this moment with all of our emphasis on tearing down what was and building something else for us to stop for a moment in this series that we're going to go through and consider what are we building together as a local church called Lakeview Christian Center. And 
I'm only using the building as an illustration because the church is not the building, right? Everybody's aware of that. Uh, what are we building together? What are we trying to accomplish together? Have we examined how well each one of us is aware and owns the end in sight, the means of getting there? Do I understand why the church functions the way it does? Do I see what a biblical church should look like? And, and am I committed to that? Do I own it? And in some ways, I could probably say, does it own you? Because I think if you're, if you're involved in a church biblically, it owns you a little bit, quite a bit. But you own the understanding of it, and, and you are moving towards it, and you are participating in it, and you know why that light switch is on the wall right there. And there aren't items just sitting around that you go, you know, I, I have no idea what that's about and why it's here and, and how to use it. Uh, that would not be a healthy uh, component. I would say from experience, this is a category leaders and churches lose sight of. You just start doing church. You, just, you do it and you do it week in and week out. You just keep doing it. Next thing you know, you have all kinds of traditions and ideas and practices Kind of like the glory cloud moved on and you're just still doing what you were doing back in 1947. Just still doing it. Rather than considering, what is the Spirit saying? Why do we do what we do? And if leaders lose sight of that, I can only imagine uh, how participants can easily lose sight of what's the church supposed to be like. So what we're going to do in the next several weeks is we're going to walk through a series. I'm actually going to title the series, A Church Covenant. Because in the end... We're going to set before us a number of biblical understandings of how we relate to each other, how we walk together, and what we believe. And in the end of that process, we're actually going to redo the entire membership of the church. We're going to ask everybody, whether you've been a member forever, or whether you've just begun to attend the church and you'd like to be a member, we're going to ask everybody to reconsider your agreement with what we're building biblically, and also your commitment to it. To reconsider, am I? And a covenant is a good word because it brings us into the concept more of a marriage. Am I aware that I'm saying I do? I don't just attend the church. I'm saying I do. I'm saying I do to God and I'm saying I do to these people. And sometimes we're just here and we're not realizing I'm responsible for something here. I'm committed to something here. And we want to review that, go back through it, and in the end of this series, as a church, renew our covenant before God and our commitment to what he has in mind and uh, what he wanted the church to look like. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a younger man named Timothy. Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes this to him in verse 14. We're just going to look at two verses. He says, I hope, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. 
Paul says, I'm, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy. Now, a little bit of background here in the larger context. If you look at the letter that's being written here, this would be included in what's called in the New Testament the pastoral letters. It's Paul writing pastoral principles to the leaders who are caring for the body of Christ in various locations. First and Second Timothy and Titus would be pastoral uh, epistles. And in this particular setting, Paul is writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus. Ephesus at this point is a church that's about 10 years old. And, and I think that that's very helpful if you read the letter understanding. This is a church that's got some history to it now. This is a church that's tried to be the church long enough to fall down, develop bruises, do some things wrong, and need to be adjusted, need to be corrected, need to be steered, need to put some principles back in place. And there's reality to living life together. I want to hit on that kind of hard this morning. There's reality. You call people into the church, there's reality to the challenges of being the church together. Ten years later, in a church, by the way, that had three of those ten years where they were pastored by the Apostle Paul himself. So this is not a church that's had deficient leadership in it that developed problems. Paul has laid foundations. Paul has spent time there. But yet still, even with an excellent leader in their history, problems develop. Challenges come into the life of the church. And, you know, one of the things that's, that I think is interesting, you know, the, the, the shiny wax maybe has worn off of the, the church in Ephesus, which is a good thing for us to be aware of. There's a big difference between being in a church for 10 years and being in a church for 10 months. Some of you guys have been in the church for 10 months. And you you don't feel the same way about this church as the people who have been here for 10 years. You probably like it more than they do. (laughs) I'm telling you the truth. People come and it's like everything's new. You know, and, and when you're coming and if you have an eye to look for new things and things to get excited about, and you're seeing differences. You were in a church before that maybe had some issues that you uh, felt were weak or weren't being done correctly. And you come here and you find that they, this church maybe happens to touch some of those issues in a fresh way. And, you know, 10 months later, you can be feeling like, oh, we are so excited about being here. Uh, can I just tell you, 10 years later, the, the wax wears off a little bit. And, and now you're, you're here with aware of the problems as well as the highlights you know the deficiencies you know what it takes to be involved you know what you know there's uh, some stuff i don't like about being here 10 years later i want to ask for a show of hands of this but i i would have a concern that in our modern society that there wouldn't be a huge number of people who would be in any one church for 10 years and if if that would be an issue for you um, you should be concerned Whatever engenders this, this let me move on to something else. Now, there are biblical reasons to leave churches, and I'm, I'm not going to pursue that this morning. But whatever engenders this itch that happens after four or five years for most folks to move on to somewhere else is actually fostering an unbiblical view of the body of Christ in your own life. Because, you know, 10 years later, I now have to deal with how I relate to people in a very different way than I do 10 months out, three or four years. I See, I've got to deal differently after a period of time. And it actually gives opportunity for the, the Spirit of God to work in my life in, in deeper ways. You can become very superficial in Christianity if you move around too much. Uh, and so, you know, for some of you actually listening to this series may end up... And, and, 
this, this is really okay. We just want the will of God for your lives. It may end up in causing you to leave here and go back where you were before because you're here testing water and, and you, you may realize as you walk through this series, I don't know that God led me to leave over there. I'm not saying he didn't. For some folks, that's exactly what he was leading you to do. But if you're going to be here, then what's being built here? Get out the set of blueprints and look at it and consider how can I be involved in that and how am I, how am I called to participate in that? Well, in Paul's addressing Timothy, there were a number of church issues. If you just read through the book quickly, you'd find warnings here about false teachers and false Doctrine, doctrine that was leading people into error. If I had to say there was a number one problem in the churches in the New Testament, that would probably be it. Always concerned about what are people being led to believe because the course of your life will follow what you've been taught and what you end up believing. So that's a, a huge issue for Paul as he warns and prepares Timothy to lead. The roles of men and women are addressed in this book. He's concerned about foundational relationship structures and, and people fulfilling the role that God has prepared for them. He addresses the issue of leadership. Uh, who should be leading in the church and how should they be qualified before they're set in places of leadership? These are issues after 10 years later. Some of these things need to get addressed. Uh, relational instructions, whether it's dealing with widows or uh, how to deal with younger men and older men and, and older women. How, how do you relate to each other? These are all issues that are needing to get touched in this larger context of this letter to Timothy. Now, in the immediate context in this passage, I want to draw out a couple of thoughts here real quickly. One, Paul thought it necessary for people to know how they ought to behave in church. I mean, he brings this up. Timothy, I'm coming I have, a, I have a bit of an agenda when I come, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a church. Now, here is Paul. Now, that word ought to, ought to, it creates a little bit of a discomfort. Paul is, Paul is here now about to impose behavioral components on people. Now, if, if, if we're not wise about our theology, we might have a problem with that. Now, Paul really doesn't give us grounds to have a problem with that. Paul is the consummate New Testament teacher of grace. We, we get our understandings from the revelation God gave to Paul about grace and how grace operates. And when grace is in place in the setting of the church, what it looks like, what it's supposed to look like, what the components are supposed to be. But for some people, grace, the idea of grace is this, it's, it's sort of this kind of a wishy-washy concept. It's full of, of tolerance, kindness. It's, it's, a, it's a synonym for nice. Just, just be nice. If a church has grace in place in its midst, then there would probably in some people's minds be an, an absence of correction. You know, noticeably absent from a church that's grace-oriented, would be correction, people correcting one another, the, the pulpit correcting people. Or they would, they would perhaps in some people's minds be an absence of convictions, people who own things with a passion and really feel strong about that. Well, you know, but people might disagree. I mean, that's people have difference of views. And so for grace to really be there, there wouldn't be, you know, real strong, powerful thumping going on in terms of your convictions. Um, probably a, 
church where there's grace being handled correctly would be low in the level of expectations. You know, just not putting a lot of expectations on people. Hey, come or don't come. Um, you know, we have covenant groups, but, you know, it's not for everybody. You know, it's just, uh, you know, that, I mean, we don't sound this way, right? You know, if you're here for a while, we believe stuff in such a way that, that it can create discomfort. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. What we believe can create discomfort. Well, you know, I just don't know how... I just don't find that there's grace when you say things like that. I mean, remember who this man is who is about to impose on you a big, nasty word. I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how one ought to behave in the church. In other words, there's a right way to behave in church, and there's a wrong way to behave in church. There's a wise way and an unwise way. There's a healthy way and an unhealthy way. When you say ought to, you impose something on people. Paul has just written a letter full of imposition on people. All the qualifications for leaders, it's an imposition. If you're a person aspiring to lead in the body of Christ, there is an issue of self-examination that will go on. And, and that may not be something that any of us like. Having our lives come under the microscope of the lens of Scripture, and we can start feeling like, you know, and you, you kind of crowd me here, man. You know, hey, I... I I know I've got issues and, you know, just, just don't, I, I just don't like, you know, feeling like I'm, I'm in some kind of a glass house and people are looking at me. But you know what? Biblically, Paul built the glass houses. I mean, he did when he stands around and says, here's the qualifications for a leader. Everybody who functions in leadership now has an imposition on them. They're, you are imposed upon by these words. But all throughout this, this, this one letter, There's instruction, there's correction, there's expectations for how we're going to live in the body of Christ. So if your view of grace means no convictions, no definition, no absolutes, just lots and lots of wiggle room, it would not be a New Testament definition for grace. It simply couldn't get along with the guy who gives us a revelation of grace. Grace apparently has specifics to it. It commands us. It relates to deficiencies in our lives. I would dare say if we, when we get uncomfortable dealing with some of the, the externals of imposition or expectations or convictions of others, if we get uncomfortable with that, we might want to visit our understanding of grace in the sense of how I relate to God and how I feel about how God feels toward me when you have a different conviction than I do. Yours may be where I need to end up, but right now I'm not there, and I'm experiencing a sense of I'm not where you are, and how do I deal with that? Well, a lot of what makes us weird is how we think God feels about us. I mean, I'm fine with you not feeling okay with me. You're in a different spot. Life experience, understanding. Uh, We disagree. I say something from the pulpit. I, I feel like biblically this is the way it is. And you might turn around and say, Keith, that sounds like this. I'm just... I'm just not there. I just disagree with that. You know, if I understand grace, you haven't touched the issue of grace in my life. You haven't touched it. Grace comes from God for me. I experience the acceptance and the grace of God. You haven't made me all of a sudden feel like, oh, I don't know. I mean, am I accepted? Am I doing the right thing? Am I condemned? I, I have bad theology. If when you and I are not on the same page together, I fall to pieces. My theology is what's the problem. Not, the remedy to that is not, let's just, let's just not have any expectations. 
Let's not have strong convictions. Let's not tell other people they're doing the wrong thing. I mean, we, well, we try to do that in a nice way, but quite honestly, uh, I mean, I just, just reading the newspaper this week, I'm sorry, people standing up and saying they're Christians who are representing something that, you know, I'll, I'll talk more about this probably next week, but when you stand up, wear the clothes of Christianity and turn around and validate the Islamic faith, I've got a problem with that. Oh, Keith, that doesn't sound very gracious. Oh, no, no, no. If you understand grace, it's the most gracious thing I can say to you. Because grace has convictions because salvation is only in Christ. And if you try and find it somewhere else and tolerate that idea, you're not gracious. So sometimes you have to stand up for grace and say, it's this and it's not this. And Paul's bringing some of that. Timothy, I want you to know how to do this thing. I want the people in the church to know how they're supposed to live. Second thing he highlights here is when he says, uh, in case I delay, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Why does it matter how one behaves in church? Because of what the church is. That's why it matters. What the church accomplishes. The, The church is the pillar and support of the truth in the world. And so its function, I put it in your outline, the church plays a vital and non-transferable role in God's purpose on earth. The church is called to do something that no one else, no other entity can accomplish. And so therefore, it matters what the building blocks of the church are going to be, if that's ever going to get accomplished. Now, into this setting, put in your outline, a different manner of life. Within the household of God, there is a different manner of life of life that's called for. And if we go back to Paul's setting, primarily Paul is having to address the influx of two sets of people into this church. He is having to deal with Jewish individuals who come into the church, and he's having to deal with heathen Gentiles who come into the church. So all of a sudden there's this this mixing going on of people that are just very, very different. Very different. If you met uh, folks who came from the Jewish variety... You'd meet some of them were, were Jewish nationalists. They were zealots because their nation, their nation happened to be a religious nation and God happened to be a feature event. But for them, the zeal was about the nation of Israel. The same way you could wear a flag and be an American and, and love your nation. That's what these guys were about. Matter of fact, they, they may have been dressed up in religious dynamics, but it's almost like the conservative component of politics today. Almost For some folks, conservatism borrows from Christianity. It's not the other way around. It's like, I'm conservative in my politics and, and will borrow from the morality of the Christian world. Uh, that zeal really is about political views. There were many in the nation of Israel that were that, were that way. And you had... Within Israel, people that were Pharisees, people who had gone beyond even what the law of God had taught, their brand of religion was just dripping with man's hands all over it, man trying to improve religious activities. And now there was this conservative religious approach to how to live life that had tons and tons of laws. Huge amount of externals were in these people's hearts. Everything they were taught to look at from the moment they were trained was what are you doing on the outside? What are you doing on the outside? And these people are coming into the church. And then you have just your average garden variety little old Jewish lady. You now she just, she sincerely just loves the God of the Old Testament. Lives a simple life. And gets exposed to Christianity and understands that it, it, the fulfillment of what she's believed all these years is found in Christ. And she comes into the church. So you've got a variety of folks coming in from that side. Then you've got these, 
these heathen Gentiles coming in. I mean, some of them in the worst case scenarios are for years been prolifically bound up in the, in the perverse idolatry of their culture. Perverse. You study the idolatry of the first century, uh, the Romans and the, the Greeks, and what they did, what, just what they did in the name of religion. I mean, it was perverse. They promoted perverseness, sexual perverseness. And those folks are coming into the church. Then you have the non-religious people that are coming in, just, you know, kind of like no form of religion, into materialism, into, into the Roman Empire and what they can get out of it. They're coming into the church. You have all this diversity that's coming into one place, and Paul's saying, you know what, I, I need to address this. I need to address how one ought to behave in the church. Now, can you understand why he needs to address this? People are coming from a huge array of different backgrounds, but yet they're called to one thing. The church has a, a single-minded task, and all this diversity now comes together to perform that single-minded task. Well, you know, that's true for us as well. It's a huge amount of diversity that comes into the church. And we, we come from different backgrounds. We bring different ideas and baggage. We have, we have cultural and personal history when we come to the church. We, we come from different religious backgrounds in our lives. Many of us here share the same background that I share. I grew up Catholic in the city of New Orleans. Raised here, lived in this area all my life. That prepares something in me. You know, my understanding of the church get, has, has had a definition before I met the biblical one. I had some ideas about what that was like. And it touched my expectations, what I was open to, what I considered when I came to be a part of, of, of a church, a biblical church. You know, the relationship dynamic. Now, I don't know what your experience was growing up Catholic and wherever you were and what parish you were involved with. But, you know, the relational dynamics within my experience in the Catholic Church was church relationships were not primary relationships. They were, they were distant relationships. They were casual relationships at best. If you knew many people in the church by name, it would have been a little bit unusual. You know, growing up, I would, you know, go to church, drive up, park, walk in, probably not interact with anyone, sit down, sit through the service in probably a familiar location. And I, I got familiar with the people who tended to sit in familiar locations as well. And, and those faces were identifiable. You know, I could tell I had seen that guy before. I'd seen that guy before. But engaging them, talking with them sharing anything of substance from my life, seeing them outside of that meeting, those would have all been foreign components. When, when the service was over, you walk out the back, you know, out of a few hundred people, there might be 20 who would gather at the church step and seem to have some five to 10 minute conversation with one another. Everybody else just kind of poured past them on their way to get back in their vehicles and go to what out there is their primary relationships, their immediate family, Lifelong friends and perhaps somebody at work. So the church was defined as a secondary set of relationships, one that you didn't, you didn't open up with these folks. You didn't share your life. You didn't pursue their care or encouragement or support. You just didn't do that. And so I'm coming into the church. I'm bringing that idea with me. That's what church is about. And that's what I'm comfortable with. And that's what I'm used to. And it's influenced the way I'm going to relate to people here. 
Or, you know, if you didn't come from a Catholic background, you, you, you may have come from a, a Protestant background where, you know, who knows, the church that you were involved with and growing up, maybe there was a, a bit of the, the, the legal dynamics of how you're supposed to behave and the emphasis was on externals and, and what you were taught was, you know, what you can and can't wear, what your hairstyle can and can't be like, um, you know, what modes of behavior qualify for holy and, and that's what you've grown up in. It's kind of gotten into you. Now you come into the church, and like a Pharisee, perhaps, you bring some of that with you. And we relate to each other out of these backgrounds, out of our own religious backgrounds. We're, we're here this morning with regional backgrounds. We come from a certain part of the world. And that's influenced who we are and how we're going to relate to the church. You know, we're, we're all, for the most part here, there's a few that aren't, aren't Americans but being an American flavors how you're going to relate to other people. I mean, this culture has some pre-described elements to what relationships are going to have in them. We think a certain way about people, about time, about money. We, we have certain ideas about life, and we bring that with us. And then if you get inside of America, there's regional components here. You know, you can, if you're from the South... You interact with people a little bit differently than somebody from the Midwest or somebody from the Northeast. There's just a little bit different of a, how we relate. I remember years ago, and part of our history, going way back as a church, we uh, had a pastor at one point, um, I think when I first came to the church, who was not from here. He was from a different part of the country. And the way people related was not like how they relate in New Orleans. You know, New Orleans has a casualness to it. There's a familiarity to it. There's your mom and them kind of thing going on. And so when you interact with people, there's this, it's not very formal. Now, well, he was from a very formal background. And so, you know, in here, I mean, you notice, you know, we, we hug on each other and it, it's just, it was just kind of sloppy, you know. But, but he wasn't that way. He was very stiff. He wore a three-piece suit and and we, if you tried to hug him, which we hug in New Orleans, but he just, he took him a while to get past that. It's kind of, I don't know if a, like a radar would go off when you get near him. It's kind of like, you know, he just kind of, I'm letting you hug me, but I hate this kind of a feeling to it. Uh, he, because he came from a different part of the country. It just, he brought that with him into his experience of, okay, how do I, how do I get comfortable with people? If you're, if you're from the South, if you're from the rural South, in particular, but almost anywhere in the South, you're bringing racial ideas with you. you know, maybe, you're, maybe you managed to be in a household that didn't demean other races or speak prejudicially against them. Uh, you would be unique if that was the case. Most people who grew up in the South, even if you had a nice set of parents, they had a little bit of an attitude when it came to other races, particularly folks who were black. You bring that with you. That's in you. And you bring it into the church. And so it affects how you're going to relate. How do you, you know, who, do you, who are you comfortable with? How will, you, how will you connect with people in the church? On the other hand, if you're black and you come from a black background, you have been exposed to certain feelings towards white people. And, you know, you've got a whole bunch of them in here to deal with. And so you bring with you issues that need to be addressed. That's part of what you're bringing here. So all this diversity is coming in. Here. And then you add to that the fact that no matter what color you are, no matter what religious background you came from and where you're from, you are who you are. Add that to it. Add your personality to this thing. Right? You got some people coming to the church. They're, they're quiet. They're reserved. 
They only speak if they're spoken to. They'll come into a meeting like this. I'm not going to point. I'm not, I'm not meaning the point, but you probably are in a certain spot in the building right now. Uh, access to the doors is important. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, it takes a while for you to get comfortable to the point where you just won't come in late and leave early. You know, just, just, I just, I'm not comfortable with people. It's just kind of who I am. I'm a private person. That person comes into the church. Uh, other people come in. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're people aggressive, right? I mean, for them, they don't, they don't hide by the back door. They get launched into this like it's a pinball game. For them, it's like, vroom, and they're shot out, and you just watch them go, ding, 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 and they're just bouncing off people full of energy, just speaking to people, you know, just running a mile a minute, and some people are knocked over by them. It's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, that's, that's who they are, and they come into the church that way. You get some people that kind of got that left brain, right brain thing going on, right? Some of them just from, from birth, they've just like, like softer, softer people, softer doctrine. Don't get lathered up. Don't yell. Uh, you know, I just, I just like the softer side. Then you got those other people that are just principled. It's either right or it's wrong. Say it that way. Don't sugarcoat it. Give it to us, Keith. Pound us, baby. I mean, there's, there's some of you who ask for that. I mean, you actually come and you ask. Man, thanks. <laughs> thanks for not holding back today, you know, and wiping blood from their face, you know. Man, the service today was really good. Whoo, man. I mean, I'm, in a, I'm crippled in a wheelchair. Man, God moved. And all these people coming together under one umbrella to do one thing. You'd better believe somebody better be telling everybody, put your personal playbook down and read off this one. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to give everybody a familiar set of blueprints to build with. And what's interesting is, you know, you mess with all this building stuff. If you've ever built a house, you know that the architect draws up one master set of plans. And he takes a copy of those plans and he gives them to a variety of people. And those variety of people all function a little bit differently. You know, the carpenter comes in with his skills and he takes those plans and he begins to build off that. And then he sets those plans down. And then uh, the plumber comes in. And he takes that same set of plans. And he begins to, to build his unique contribution into that same setting. And then the electrician comes in. And he does something different than either of those other two guys have done. But he reads the plans. And he brings his ability. The roofer comes in. And when you're done, you have one house that a diverse variety of people have all worked on. And let me tell you what can happen. What cannot happen. And if you've ever built a house, you'll know this cannot happen. You can't have some guy walk in and go, oh, I don't need those plans. I've been a plumber for 25 years. Um, just, just point me towards the house. I know what I'm doing. You can't do that. I don't care how long you've been or whatever you've been. If you don't know and you're not following a plan, you're going to build what you want to build rather than what the master plan tells you to build. And, and quite honestly, in, the, in many churches, there's such a level of arrogance and people, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Well, is it possible that you might still need to go back and consult the plans on occasion so that we all are reading off the same set of plans? And at the end of the day, we're all building something with all of our diversity. We're building one thing. We're building the church together with all this diversity. Put a warning in your outline. Warning. If we're not biblically informed about this, our tendency will be to shop for a church that fits us 
rather than allowing God to fit us to the church. If we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is shopping for a church that fits us. Oh, I just like this and I like that. And I'm not, I don't have to deal with the discomfort of that. Rather than allowing God to fit us to the church, which is what God has the intention on doing. Now let me touch on this next thought that Paul brings out here. He says in verse 15, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and support of truth. Now, in this statement, we get a sense of why does it matter how one behaves in church? Why does it matter? Why not just let everybody kind of just do whatever? You know, they're all, you just said they're all diverse. They come from different backgrounds. Well, just, just let people do whatever. Because there, there is assigned to the church a task of monumental proportion. It's the most important thing happening on the planet. And it's made up of individuals who all diversely and uniquely contribute to that one thing. But, you know, it raises the question for us. Have we ever stopped and considered what is the purpose for the church? I mean, don't just pop up and attend the church. What, what's the purpose? Why, why do church anyway? I think if you don't start there, you won't ask the questions of then why do it a certain way? Church is still a, a word that floats around and it has all kinds of pre-existing ideas and baggage for every one of us. You know, we, we use it in ways that give away uh, what we think the word means. Uh, where, where do you go to church? Do you, do you mean the location? Is that what you're asking? You know, yeah, well, where do you go? Where's the building? I mean, you can be meeting in a covenant group in, in Algiers and you're having church. Right, so, I mean, yeah, I kind of answered that question carefully. Um, we, we think about it as a meeting. Did, did you go to church Sunday? Well, how we use that word indicates what we think is church is defined by attending a meeting. That's what it is. Or for some people, church is almost just like a, a moral boundary for their life. It's just kind of this, it kind of provides a little bit of a governor. And they speak about church kind of like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, it's been rough this last few years. I remember back when I was, back when I was going to church, you know, I wasn't having some of these problems. You know, it, almost as though the, the church provided some moral boundaries that we live our life within moral boundaries. And that's what we think the church is. But most of us, I think we're okay with the idea that church is a part of our life. It's part. But for, for church and its function to begin to define our lives... Almost it's like a thought like, I don't know what on earth you're talking about. Well, listen to this thought. It's a good question. Good one for us to personally wrestle through. Is my purpose in life flowing out of God's purpose on earth? Or am I trying to include God in my plans, my hopes, or my goals? Is my purpose in life flowing out of God's purpose on earth? Or am I trying to include God in my plans, hopes, or goals? You know, conversion can have two different dynamics to it. Very different. Call one of them extreme life makeover. Conversion can be that, that revelation that God brings to you about the need of salvation in one's life. That when it comes... It's an extreme life makeover. It comes with one of those big machines 
the claw. It smashes everything and digs the foundations up and it gives you new reasonings for everything about your life. Everything about your life has a different purpose dynamic to it. Everything. Or some people sign on for conversion to be a a modest, moderate renovation project. You know, when we get to that point in our life where we realize I've done some wrong things. Yeah, everything's not going right in my life. I need some help and I need forgiveness. And we invite God in on that ground. And then we proceed with a sense of of almost friendship with God maybe where, you know, from now on, from now on, I'm going to include God in everything that I'm doing. From now on, I'm just resolved. I'm including God in everything I'm doing. And for some of us right now, we're going, okay. And but you're making it sound like that's a problem. Can I tell you this? There's six billion people on the planet. God's not interested in being included in six billion things that are going on. God's doing one thing, and he's inviting billions to do that with him. It's a very different concept. Much, much of Christianity is about my personal goals, my desires, who I want to be as a person. That's why so many churches are are getting away with the idea of preaching self-help messages because we've turned Christ into something that we add to our backpack on the way to where we were going before. But now since he's with us, I need to curse less, drink less, uh, not run around, clean up my act a bit, and I know I need to be forgiven, and I'm so glad I can pray now. And we continue on our journey. Versus realizing God has come, God from the beginning of time had an agenda that he wanted everybody to be about. He's doing one thing, one thing, and he invites six billion people to do it in a variety of ways. That's not the same as including God in my plans. And God, you're welcome now. And I, I just feel like I've left God out of my life. That's true. But he's not wanting to sign on for your architectural drawings. He doesn't want to build what you're building. He wants you to build what he's building. Now consider for a moment, I'll walk through this quickly. What is the church? What, what is the purpose for the church? Well, if you, if you take common words out of the Bible... The, the word used for church in the Greek language is the word ekklesia, from which we get ecclesiastical. Ekklesia is two Greek words. One is ek, which means out, and the other is kaleo, which means to call. So church, ekklesia, is those who are called out. That's what the church is, those who are called out. Now, within the church, you have a word that's called the saints. It's not the New Orleans saints, and it's not the dead people. If you grew up in New Orleans, that's the only saints you knew, right? It's the ones that play on, on Sunday, and then there's the ones who are dead, and they're in heaven. But you didn't realize that that's not how the Bible uses the word saints. Saints in the Bible are the believers who have been saved. And that word in the Greek language for saints is the word hagios. It's the same word from which we get the word holy. And it means set apart. That, that which is holy is set apart. It's distinct from. So you come to this conclusion that the people of God are the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones who are the saints who are separated for a purpose. So what are we called out for? What are we separated for? Well, 
We are separated for this is this is the central purpose of God. We are separated for the revealing of God's glory. That's what we're about. That's the one thing God has always been around. If you go back to the charter statement of the existence of man, it is let us make man in our image. That's what God's doing. Everywhere in his creation, every person who draws breath is to be an image of the glory of God. That's why he made man. If you move away from this point, you you have to reinvent Christianity. You have to. God wants to be seen in his glory. He wants to image his glory into the earth. And that's always been what he's been doing. Turn to 1 Timothy. I mean, I'm sorry, 1 Peter. Real quick, a couple of books back to the right. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. If you're looking for a purpose statement for your life, you really have to begin with the purpose statement for the church in order to arrive at a purpose statement for your life. I don't know if you've ever thought that out. C- could, could a guy who, who says he, he, he becomes self-realized at some point in his life and he realizes, I'm, I'm a tight end. That's who I am. Or I'm, I'm a wide receiver. And what I, I, I want God to so fulfill his purpose. I'm a wide receiver. That's who I am. Can he possibly understand what a wide receiver is without understanding the game of football and what, under, what a team is? Can he? He can't. He cannot understand his purpose as a wide receiver because if you pull him off the team, he's, he's just, there's no one to throw him the ball. There's no routes to run. He's not even on the field anymore. See, his entire existence as a wide receiver is dependent upon being on a football team. You got no football team, pal? You got no purpose. So you can't start with who is Keith Collins so that I can figure out my purpose statement. I have to start with what is the church that I am a part of. And now I can find out who I'm supposed to be. I've got to get on the team before I can figure out how to play a position. Does that make sense? So sometimes we start in the wrong spot. We start with God, I'm an individual, define your purpose through me. And God says, well, here, you have to deal with statements like this. Verse 9, 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here's a purpose statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. See, what used to be true about you, something's changed. You're different now. You are chosen. Listen to these words. Chosen, race, priesthood, nation, a people. Where have you heard all that stuff before? I mean, this is, this is an extraction of the Old Testament. This is God continuing to do what he's always been doing. God has always chosen a race, a generation, a priesthood. This is all familiar stuff to us. It all comes out of the Old Testament where God reveals His purpose would be bound up. Genesis 12, when God binds his purpose up to a man named Abraham and his descendants. At that point, Abraham, you are my chosen friend. And I will make covenant with you. And out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob becomes Israel. All the dealings of God are going to take place. A people who were not a people, but now they are a people. Redefined 
in their lives. They have a function. They're going to function as priests. There's a priesthood of a nation involved here. That priesthood means that these people chosen are going to have access to God in a way that no one else does. See, this is all true, both of the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. This is a defining thing for us. If you, if you look through Isaiah, I won't go through the details of that, but Isaiah 41 begins this thought process and it goes on for a couple of chapters. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Isaiah 43 says God is summoning his people, my people whom I created for my glory. Why? Why are we drawing breath? For the glory of God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. For what what reason? Why? Why are you these things? To show forth, that passage says, to show forth the excellencies of him. That's why you exist. You exist to show the excellencies of him. Now, if that's what the church is about, which means individually that's what we're about, if that's what the church is about, then the church becomes, if you will, a window, a lens through which one can gaze through this window and can see the excellencies of God on display. That's why we exist. Now, what does that do to our lives and the manner in which we live them. See, how we live now is a display of the excellency of God. And when one gazes at the church, one should be able to see God, what he's like. Let us make man in our image. Let us image who we are through man. And the reason why God calls and chooses and brings us out and makes us the ecclesia, the church, is so that the excellency of him can be seen. I write these things to you so that one will know how he ought to behave in the household of God, the church of God. It's a sober reality. People ought to be able to look through the window of the church, if you will, and see something of the glory of God in what we believe. See, I mean, you ought to carry passionately a belief in the salvation of Christ because it says something about the glory of God who put his own son on the cross as the only remedy for man's problem, the only one. And when you come in contact with somebody who says, oh, well, it's a way amongst many. I don't think you're going to find if someone looks through the lens of where, how's God feel about that? Who slayed his own son. God, while you're staring through the window, you might have recommended to him. God, I don't know what you were thinking of doing that to your own son when there were other ways to save man. That's what we're saying. So when you gaze into the church, what you ought to find is the belief system that honors what God has said is the only way of saving anyone. We either show the excellency of God or we accommodate the beliefs of man and we don't show the excellency of God because we kind of want to be okay with all religions. That doesn't display the excellency of God. So it matters what the church believes. It matters how we love. 
It matters that when one gazes into the church, one can encounter love on display. One can encounter humility on display. Because that says something about God. I walk around as an arrogant individual in my life. I portray a small God and a large man. If I have found cause in me to be impressed with me, that could only be possible because my gaze at God has left me thinking God is small. You understand? I mean, this makes sense. See, I, we encounter God as the church, and as a result, that encounter does something to us. And you get a big, holy, perfect God in front of you, and you, you get in his light, you are going to find how small you really are, and you're going to be flat amazed that that God is loving this glob of mess right here. I am overwhelmed that God would take his love and insist on giving it to me. Unbelievable in light of who he is. It doesn't leave room for arrogance. It doesn't leave room for me to make sure in every conversation I have, I work in highlighting who I am. That displays I've not met God very well. If I'm constantly trying to get you to think I'm something, I, I am giving away the fact that when I gaze at God, I leave unimpressed. I'm still impressed by me. Aren't you impressed by me? Can I tell you about me and what I did? Oh, God was a part of it. But let me tell you about me. And the world looks in and gazes at that. Do you understand? These, I write these things to you so that one will know how he ought to behave in the house of God, the place where the glory of God is on display. This ought to be a house full of courage to live for the right things, convictions to believe things. That ought to be on display the value system of one who has met God and who understands eternity awaits us. The promise of God. God said this is temporary, that's eternal. There are certain things that matter, there are certain things that do not. If I've met this God and he's impressed that on me, then my value system ought to be a display of the glory of God. What he says is really important. What he says is really valuable. How we do relationships. When somebody gazes through the window of the church and watches how we relate to one another, how marriages are walked out. What happens when marriages discover that we're really different from each other? We really don't like each other. The world says, well, it's a brief life. Go your own way. The best thing for you. But, but, but when I encountered God and he chose me he chose somebody very unlike him on my best day I'm a terrible wife to God my best efforts I I chronically burn the food (laughs) I am always preoccupied with something else besides him By comparison to his love, my response to him is pathetic. But yet he chose me. And he remains faithful to me. That's who he's married to. He doesn't get down the road to discover, Keith, you're really, you're just not like me. I just don't know that I want to continue in this. But see, when I turn around and deal with my wife or my spouse in a way that doesn't reflect that, it, it, it says something about the puniness of the glory of God. If what you've tasted is a God who, you're not aware of how different you are than him, and you're not aware of how much he loves you in spite of those differences, 
you're left unaffected. And when it's your turn to forgive, people you battle in here today with forgiveness and the world looks in through the lens of, of what does the glory of God look like? What's it look like? And, and there's issues of forgiveness in your life. Are, are you aware for a moment how much you have been forgiven? When sinful man, sinful man, sins against sinful man, you know, we, we're, still, we're still awful close to each other. When sinful man sins against infinitely perfect, always have done the right thing, holy God, the distance of the offense is immeasurable. And God comes and he says, as far as the east is from the west, I have separated your sins from me. I love you and I forgive you. And then we stand and say, oh, but she spoke about me or he did that and I'm not going to, uh-uh. And people look in and they gaze. See, they can't find God in the church, can they? They can't find the glory of God. There's no image of God taking place. I write these things to you so that one will know how he ought to behave in the church. Now, why are we going to go through this series? Matt, go ahead and, and come up. Why are we going to go through this series? Well, because it matters what the church is. It matters what we're building. It matters what our convictions are. It matters what we believe. It matters the doors of relationship that we extend to one another. It matters whether we're willing to cross the boundaries of who I am individually or religiously or where I'm from or bad experiences that I've had. Am I willing to jump into the church with both feet for the sake of the church really being the church, the pillar and support of the truth, the truth? is the person and work of Jesus Christ on display, being supported and seen right here. When we walk through this series, we're going to go through a number of points together. And each one of them, we're going to have the opportunity to to, to examine, is that what the Bible teaches? Is this what the Bible teaches me about this particular dynamic? If we agree, then we're going to be asked, Will I commit to that in my life? You know, when you stand at the altar with somebody and you pledge your life, you say, for better or for worse, sickness and in health, till death do us part. Those words are supposed to mean something. They're more valuable than your life. And when you come into the church, you make a similar commitment to God and to one another. It's not just a social gathering. It's the window through which the world gazes and the heavens actually gaze as well in order to see the image of God and that which he has always desired to accomplish to be done right here in this setting. That's huge. You want meaning and purpose in life? Get the sense in your heart that you're actually accomplishing that. Whatever task you're out to do in your life, if if, if that's not the primary task, through the means of whatever God has uniquely gifted you to do. If you're an electrician, bring the glory of God into this setting through your talents. If you're a plumber, build the church through your talent. If you're a lawyer or a husband, or a mom, or a a daughter, or a son. 
uniquely through how you are diverse, you bring the image of the glory of God into this setting so that the heavens and the earth can look and see ah, the image of God. That's what the church is called to. And that's why a blueprint is needed and an understanding of how one ought to be in the church is important. Let's stand up together. Lord, I thank you that some 28 years ago, you came to me in ways similar to your pursuit of Abraham and decided you would make me your friend. Oh, on that moment, redefined everything about me. And it flooded my life with purpose. Every day, Lord, I, I awake and I draw breath for another day in which your glory can somehow be seen in my life. And Lord, thank you with all the disqualifiers that there are about me. Your mercies are new every morning and I have a fresh shot every day. And Lord, you've introduced us through the word to the fact that Christianity and the imaging of your glories is not an individual sport, it's a team sport. It means relationships with people, people different than myself challenging, lovely, wonderful, disappointing, walking together for one task that makes it worth it all. Or would you convince us as a church that there is no place on earth that we would rather be Yes. than part of that which brings glory to your name. Together, chosen, a priesthood, a people, once we're not a people, but now we are a people. Together, we are a people. To show forth your excellencies. Oh God, prepare us. Oh, we're building a pretty building. That's not what we're after, Lord. That building is just a place that provides a lens, windows that others can gaze in and see the lives that are being lived when the church comes together. And when we leave, that will just be a building. It won't be the church. But our lives will be available for people and for the heavens to look on. And Lord, what a privilege to see the glory of the invisible God displayed for the city of New Orleans, for brothers and sisters in Christ, and for the heavens to see. Oh, God be magnified in our midst. Be seen glorious and prepare us through these wise words in Scripture to be your people. Only by your mercy can we come to you. 
harvest is a gift from your hand. We're only jars. We are only jars of clay that hold a priceless treasure. We exist to bring you pleasure, oh God. Not to us, but to your name. the Lord.